live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. We are veering off the plan a bit. There's a big sense of sadness now in the UK following the passing of Queen Elizabeth. Not just the UK in general, but across the Jewish communities, it's very much felt. There's a certain sense of loss. And I think it's worth spending a few minutes talking about what is now history. Um, there have been many requests for this, so this will be a one-off. And uh, if you could still speak about with particularly an emphasis on her connection to the community. Yes, we'll try and focus on her legacy, I guess, vis-a-vis the Jews. Of course, she wasn't simply somebody who was familiar to us by name, but actually every banknote, every coin we handled, every stamp we saw, almost every cereal box we opened would have had her image or logo on it. Um, you know, if you compare this to the most famous of American presidents, none have their image on a banknote in their lifetime, let alone their presidency. So she was very visible in that sense. And most obviously, the longevity of her reign means that most of us cannot remember another reigning monarch in this country. And that which is long familiar evokes nostalgia especially coming as it does on the heels of all these celebrations in the UK a few months ago for her 70 years of duty. It all serves to highlight the absence. She was a almost a point of reference for the UK, and therefore now the sense that actually nothing lasts forever is central to people's wistfulness. And I think there's also a, a feeling of hashkocha, of the timing. The day before the Prime Minister resigned and a new one was appointed by the Queen in the same way that she had done for 14 previous Prime Ministers. If her passing would have occurred two days earlier, we would probably be in somewhat of a constitutional crisis. There's a sense of timing in there as well. And even the very fact that she was queen at all was Hashkacha. It wasn't her royal lineage. Her uncle was the eldest son of George V. And indeed, he was king for, I mean, less than a year. He was Edward VIII. Baruch Hashem. Uh, Hashem put in his mind to throw it all away for a, a woman whom he was in a relationship with, which was highly problematic at the time. And when given the choice, he actually abdicated the throne, which is quite astonishing, thank God, because he showed marked tendencies to admiration for Nazi fascism. Um, so it was unplanned that her line would become the royal one. And, of course, with all this, there's the nature of her personality. She was seen within the UK as devoted, dignified, a person with perseverance despite age, family crisis. She embodied the concept of duty. So I guess you have uh, nostalgia, admiration, familiarity all rolled into one. Yeah. How much did she 
have to do with the Jewish community, if anything? Well, her relationship with the Jewish community was always positive, but the most obvious interactions were when she had guests. So uh, Diane Aaron-Troy speaks of his overnight stay as a guest in Windsor Castle, which was, uh, he says, malchus in a royal welcome. Windsor, unlike Buckingham Palace, uh, had their guest list made up from the Queen's own list, not the government. So Diane Aaron-Troy and the Robertson were there as part of the year of the Queen's 60th birthday. There were maybe 10 guests. Why were they chosen? Like not the chief rabbi? or The chief rabbi also did go at, at a different occasion. I'm not sure if it was earlier, but uh, he also was invited. And, you know, when you got there, your cases were taken up to your room. And when you got up there, your toothpaste would have already have been put out for you on the brush in the bathroom. <laughs> and when you were seated at dinner, each individual had their own waiter who was wearing gloves and they would change gloves between each course. You had to send in a CV in advance of your arrival and the Queen and Prince Philip conversed with each of their guests in familiarity because they'd each read every CV. Wow, it's a hard job. Yep. After dinner, uh, they were taken on a tour of some of the rooms in the castle. And there is one enormous room just with tapestries. They are the Book of Esther. That's what those tapestries are. And then they retired to the sort of drawing room and the Robertson sat next to the Queen. When they were leaving, the Dian said that the experience was actually overwhelming, the sense of monarchy, tradition. And he said at the time, this is Malchusa da'ara ke'in Malchusa da'rakia, that the monarchy reflects the actual divine monarchy. Right, so many have been saying that it's particularly relevant now in Elot to get a handle on Malchus, which we proclaim on Rosh Hashanah. And as we've seen recently, they've been proclaiming it in all the, in the towns, each one with their own yes. royal proclamation. Yep, it's the concept of a ruler. Uh, I remember that Ramesh uh, Shapir Zetzal, on one of his first visits to England, asked to be driven late at night after the Shiram were finished to Buckingham Palace so that he could view Malchus. Really? Uh, the, yep, the edifice. The, there, there are few institutions in today's world that speak of that length of time. When you think of something typically British, you think of the Queen, the stability, the institution she represented. And Sir Martin Gilbert also told me of his stay in Windsor Castle. He also mentioned the tour after dinner and all the portraits they passed, all the history. Of course, I mean, obviously, given his expertise as an historian, that would have been a, a treasure trove. Talking of which, if they have to cover all the mirrors in Buckingham Palace with a shiver, they're going to have quite a drop on their hands. <laughs> Let's hope they're not of the opinion that all the pictures should have to be covered. Right. You had Lord and Lady Jacobovitz, who, when he was the chief rabbi, was also invited to Windsor. And before they came, in the envelope with the invitation was another card, which contained a choice of three kosher menus for their meals. And the staff unpacked his case, same story, but he had coins in one of the pockets. And when he came to the room, he found all the coins laid out neatly by denomination and in each case with the queen's head uppermost. <laughs> and that evening, Lady J told the queen her story of how she and her husband, Robert Jacobovitz, had met. And the queen was so fascinated by it that she called over her mother, the queen mother, and said, listen to this story. 
And Lady J expressed her gratitude to Hashem, but also to the Queen, that someone who'd been a hunted child refugee in World War II was now being welcomed by royalty. So clearly Jews were made to feel comfortable in her vicinity, and Jews in turn honoured her. Rabbi Rakov, the Gated Rov, allowed the Jews of Gated to shave during the three weeks when they turned out to see her pass by. Uh, Rebleib Gurvich, the Gated Rosh Hashiva, stood with the Holy Shiva when she opened the leisure center in Gated and made the brocha. And she was noteworthy for her sense of dignity, avoiding scandal, hard work, which rang a very strong bell because those were values which the Jews themselves, I mean, especially in the 50s and 60s, but, you know, even in the 80s and 90s, would have wanted themselves to be noted for by their own neighbors. It's something that Jews treasured. Uh, They were mostly second generation, perhaps not the same sentiments nowadays. And therefore, when the question was asked whether it was appropriate to say to Hillim when it was announced that there was great concern about her health, the answer was obviously yes. I mean, we know that the Neid Behuda said to Hillim for the recovery of Empress Maria Theresa in 1767, and we've actually spoken about this on the... I was just going to say, yeah, yes, everyone knows this. Absolutely. Part four of 18th century Prague. <laughs> Maybe they don't remember part four. They might not. So yes, you're really describing the sense of loss that we're all feeling, and she, she left a voice in her passing. We all feel that. Yes. But it's noteworthy that she had no close acquaintances or friends in the Jewish community. I mean, did she have any friends? Right. She had almost no friends in general in life because her role almost precluded it. Her only real confidant was her husband. And when he died, basically so did she. You know, there's a very powerful image, I don't know if you've seen it, the photo of his funeral and the queen all alone sitting on a pew in black during COVID. But it's far more than COVID that engendered that sense of loneliness in in that photo. Yeah. I've actually noticed that the articles being written about the queen and the Jews, which say says almost nothing. I mean, they talk about her father, her family. Exactly. It's down to a series of encounters, positive ones. Um, Other monarchs in Britain were different. I don't know, Victoria or Queen Elizabeth I, because they held political power and they advised their ministers from a position of authorization rather than suggestion. You know, no Jewish delegation went to speak to Queen Elizabeth II to prevail on her to change her mind about affairs of state. She didn't have that power. It's very different to her ancestors. Her great-grandfather, Edward VII, in both of these things, really, in the private circle of Edward VII's life, money was a feature. The king, as prince, had indulged in the good life. He continued to indulge in speculation. And it happened to be that some of the richest in England were Jews. There was Rothschild, the first Jewish peer. There were the Sassoons. There was Sir Ernest Castle, the royal banker, who was a Jew, but he was not only a foreigner, but he had started in life with nothing except for his personality and talent. And it was a relationship of mutual gain between him and the king. He was the last man to call on the dying king with an envelope stuffed with banknotes. So the the king had close friends who were Jews. Uh, It was an association that was deplored by the royal family and by fellow monarchs at a time of uh, mounting anti-Semitism in Europe. But what also stands out is that Edward VII used affairs of state to intervene on behalf of Jews before he left to meet with the Tsar in 1908. 
So the king was asked by Rothschild and others to mention the continued attacks on Jews in Russia, and they begged the king's intervention with the Tsar on behalf of the Jews. And he brought it up with Tsar Nicholas II on the state visit. And the English politicians weren't happy, but for the Jews, Edward was a hero. Now, it's true that the Tsar was his nephew, as was the Kaiser of Germany. It's also true that the Tsar ignored his request because political reality dictated that family ties didn't matter, which caused World War One. But he put himself out there politically for the Jews. And, you know, until today, there is a King Edward VII Jewish memorial drinking fountain in the east end of London. And the plaque on the fountain records that it was built from subscription raised from Jewish inhabitants in the East End, in East London. And there are cherubs around it, one of them holding a ship, because so many Jews were recent immigrants. One of them holds a needle and thread, because the clothing industry employed most of the Jews in the East End. And one holds a book, because of the importance of Jews' place in education. And one is a portrait of the king. But, you know, Queen Elizabeth II never had office of state to wield power, nor possibly as a result, that closeness with individuals. I want to ask you about something that's been circulating, particularly this week, about the fact that the Queen never visited Israel. Yes. So she visited 129 countries during her reign, but not Israel. And it is clear that this must have been a policy decision. The only thing that's unclear is whether it was the foreign office, the, you know, the Arabists there, or the views within the royal family that made it happen. We have to realize that she came to rule just after the British mandate in Palestine had come to an end. And both the foreign office and the members of the royal family would have been negatively disposed towards Israel. Uh, the Labour government was very negative to the Jews, as were the British army serving in Palestine. English newspapers would have been pretty biased. So the views that she would have heard and of her family wouldn't have been pro-Israel. Did she visit other Middle Eastern countries? She definitely visited Jordan, and I'm pretty sure she visited Egypt. But you can look up the newspapers in England of years ago, not just of the last week, and they will say it was because of the political situation there. I'm not convinced that it was because of the Palestinian issue as it stands now, but because of a policy that was formulated at the beginning of her reign. Right. Her husband obviously did visit Israel. In a private capacity. Yeah. In fact, at the most recent JLE dinner, our guest speaker was the Israeli ambassador, Tsipi Hotovelli, and I was chatting with her. We were actually talking about the Geniza collection in Cambridge, which is why I took her there a few months later. And she told me about one of her predecessors as ambassador, Yehuda Avner, that a British protocol requires a ceremonial presentation of an ambassador's credentials to the Queen. And his took place in August when London was humid and he has to be dressed as protocol requires, you know, a winged collar and a white bow tie. And he's driven to Buckingham Palace in an 18th century gold coach, four white horses, you know, the whole thing. And he bows at the door, he walks two steps forward, he bows again, and he says, you know, Your Majesty, I have the honor to present to you my credentials as the ambassador of Israel to the court of St. James. To which the Queen said, thank you, and she gives the credentials to her lady-in-waiting. And then she says, 
I do believe that this is the very first time I have ever received credentials from a foreign ambassador actually born in this country because he was from Manchester. So he says, Your Majesty, I might have been physically born in this country, but spiritually I was born in Jerusalem from where my ancestors were exiled by the Romans 2000 years ago. And she says, were they really? How awful. And then <laughs> she starts talking about the weather because uh -huh. she wasn't going to be drawn on the subject with a person who politically represented Israel. And that's in 1983. And that sense of sort of dichotomy persists until Prince William visited in 2018. That was the first public visit. But I'm convinced that Charles III will also visit Israel in the future. But in many ways, the juxtaposition of her life as ruler and the unfolding of the history of the state of Israel were there at the very beginning of her monarchy when she was still a princess. I always thought the reason she never visited was because her whole being almost was steering clear of any controversy or political angle. And the monarchy today was is true, but uh, as we've just mentioned, she did visit other Middle Eastern countries. You know, right? But it's hard to get it right when when you visit Israel, unless I mean the Americans yes. are obviously allies. But yeah, uh, yeah, that that is that is quite true. So going back to the beginning of her life or beginning of her married life, there's an article I read in Der Vorwärts, which was the main Jewish newspaper in America for many years, about her marriage to Prince Philip, written in Yiddish, as the paper was in 1947, and it starts, Die Königliche uh, um, and it goes on to say, A halbe million Menschen is gestanden in the Gassen von London. Half a million people standing in the streets of London. And they talk about the glickliche color mit ihr Chosen. Right? They, they talk about her as a, you know, as a Chosen and color. It's, it's quite cute. And he writes there that the royal family um, arouses deep feelings of uh, long gone England and its pride, its traditions. And that wedding in 1947 for Britain, even for the world and perhaps for Jews, represented renewal from a war-ravaged Europe. And in the article, they refer to the fact that, you know, the British survived the hell of the Blitz and they battled the Hitler regime. And this was the beginning of her reign, uh, a new start, basically, a new start after the two world wars. And she was able to continue that to far better times. Interestingly, the article goes on to say we shouldn't be so amazed by the size of the crowds because we're confident that if New York would have a royal wedding, it would be a far larger crowd than in London. <laughs> so I guess crowd size has been something to compete about long before presidential inaugurations in 2017. <laughs> and there's one great line, which is whether it's a good shidduch remains to be seen. Since Philip cannot be king, he will have to obey Elizabeth. <laughs> <laughs> but on our topic, the week after that wedding, which took place on the 20th of November, you have the UN vote regarding Israel. They're very interlinked moments. And, you know, the next day on November 21st, the newspaper has at its headline, England wet ibegeben eret Israel nor zim UN. Right. The only the UN commission, not to an interim government. And you have on that same page, Arabs attack a bus wounding nine Jews. And lower down on that page, you have a description of the royal wedding. So they, you know, they come together. And for Jews around the world, this was more than simply a chasna. 
they were hoping that the new generation of British leadership would support their right to self-determination. But perhaps one more personalised story about the Queen. So Rabbi Abraham Levy, in his book on his time in the rabbinate, mentions the occasion he was invited for lunch at the palace in 2011. He told the Queen that before Queen Victoria came to the throne, she was the daughter of the Duchess of Kent, she used to stay next door to Sir Moses Montefiore's country estate in Ramsgate. And the house was not as um, splendid as uh, the Montefiore's. So Montefiore had a golden key made for her and told her that she could come into the gardens whenever she wanted. And Rabbi Levy wondered to the Queen where this key was. So <laughs> the Queen says, we have to find it. And that, she had never heard about it. No. <laughs> and that is how it's left in the memoirs. But subsequently, the palace tracked down a number of keys, and one of them now hangs in the shawl in Ramsgate, as Rabbi Nemeth told me. So, you know, you have here a very personal connection and a, a loyal queen. And in general, she served her people, particularly those within her kingdom, with a devotion and won a place in the hearts of Jews. And in fact, her frailty at the end is sort of like losing a grandmother. Yeah. And like you said before, she was such a timeless figure. Yeah. And the amount of times we saw her, whether it's the stamps of the money, like you said, it's just uh, it was almost unimaginable to lose. Yeah. I want to steer you to our current king. His Majesty, Charles the Third. What can you tell us about him? So his full name actually is Charles Philip Arthur George, and he could have chosen any of those four to be known by. He could have been Philip the First, uh, but he chose Charles. Um, so perhaps we'll look for a moment at his predecessors, Charles the First and Second, in order to give us an indication, possibly, of what Charles the Third will be like. They have some history between the pair of them, a number of firsts. Charles I ruled at a time where there were no Jews yet allowed back into England. He, in his lifetime, spent heavily on art. He clashed about religion with his nation. He had failed wars in Europe, which led to disagreements with Parliament and eventually an English civil war. He was put on trial for high treason and executed, following which Parliament ruled for 11 years. And Charles II, who was the eldest surviving son of Charles I, spent those years in exile in Holland, where he was helped by, amongst others, Jews there. And during the interregnum, as it's known, Oliver Cromwell was Lord Protector. And this is the only decade in the past thousand years where there's no monarch in England. And Cromwell did not allow festival days, including Christmas, to be celebrated. They were to be spent in respectful contemplation. And when Charles II came back as king in 1660, he brings back theatres and Christmas. So he's seen as the fun king. <laughs> and his restoration was initially feared by the Jewish community because they'd only a couple of years earlier come out into the open and been given the ability to worship unmolested. But the anticipated concerns that the Jews had did not take place. In fact, for more information on that, there's an also a podcast that we've made on political intrigues. And the rights of the Jews were confirmed by Charles II, which was unusual given that at the exact same time, Catholics were being limited. So we hope that Charles III carries on in Charles II's path yes. as the 
extra fun king. <laughs> we do know one thing. I'm assuming you'll tell me this isn't true, but it's of popular, I wouldn't say belief. People do say it almost as fact that the royal family are circumcised by religious Jew. Absolutely true. Charles oh, III was circumcised by Rabbi Snowman, I think his name was, who was a, a rov as well as a moel. goes back to Queen Victoria. I mean, Edward VII was circumcised as well. Whether it goes back earlier than that, we're not sure. Just by the way, Charles III had a very strong connection to Lord Jonathan Sachs. There's a well-known story of Rabbi Sachs returning from the Rabin funeral on a private jet with Prince Charles and Tony Blair and two or three other politicians. It was just before an election in the UK. And so after a while, Rabbi Sachs leaves the politicians to talk shop and he opens a Chumash and he starts learning. And eventually this group of three or four politicians get drawn into discussion with Rabbi Sachs about Chumash, about scriptures, as they put it. And Prince Charles comes to the back of the plane and he sees what the discussion is about and he takes part in it. And from then on, Prince Charles would call Rabbi Sachs on a regular basis to discuss Chumash. Really? Yes. Wow. Rabbi Sachs spoke of this? Yes. Well. Yes. And one other thing we know, and in fact, I think even Prince Charles spoke about this when Rabbi Sachs passed away. One other thing we do know is that Charles III's image will face to the right on all minted coins, as opposed to Queen Elizabeth, who faced to the left, because tradition dictates that monarchs alternate direction. <laughs> However, since we are talking queens and Jews, I would like to add a fascinating, true, and research story about a queen, but this one of Holland, if you will indulge me. Yes. In 1908, Queen Wilhelmina of Holland was in the resort area of Marienbad in Austria. It wasn't an official state visit, so she only had a small entourage of people with her. She gets off the train and she sees a huge crowd on the platform and she's, you know, curious. And she's told that a great Jewish personality, uh, it was actually the Munkar Chereba, um, had just arrived and many disciples had come to greet him. So she wanted to know what is a Rebbe. And she's told that a Rebbe is somebody who's a very pious person of great wisdom, who bestows blessings and advice to his followers. And the Queen is fascinated. She was the only surviving child of King William III. Her three brothers had all predeceased her. She's already been married for eight years and was childless. And that would have brought the Dutch royal family to an end. So she's the end of the, the last heir to the throne. So she asks one of her attendants to try and arrange for her to meet the Rebbe privately. So he gets hold, she or he or she gets hold of the, the Rebbe's gabai, and word comes back that evening that the Rebbe will see her. So the next day, uh, Munka Rebbe goes to a large park just outside the city, and the Queen is accompanied by two attendants. And the Rebbe comes with two Bochrim. And she spoke openly to the Rebbe about her anxiety of not having a child to carry on the monarchy. And the Rebbe listens and tells her not to worry, that her monarchy would continue. And he used the expression, Ka'is Chaya, at this time next year. The same words that Hashem uses to tell Avram Avinu that in a year his wife Sarah would have a child. How old was she at the time? Well, she was already the queen in 18... Um, she was not that old. She was in her... Must have been in her late 20s. The next year, 1909, 
the Queen has a little girl, her only child, and she names her Juliana. Um, and 39 years later, in fact, in 1948, Juliana became the Queen of Netherlands, and then her daughter Beatrix became Queen after her. And um, that's the end of that part of the story, but it continues. Rav Yaakov Tzvi Katz was a Talmud Chochem who served as a rabbi in a Hungarian town near Debrecen. During the war, he ends up in Bergen-Belsen concentration camp, and all his writings were taken from him, and he survives the ordeal of the camps, and he wants to rebuild his life. He goes back to Hungary, and he realizes there's no real future there for the Jews, so he tries to emigrate to Holland. But his visa application was rejected because there was a quota. He applies a second time and he's told that Holland is only accepting those whose presence would benefit the country. And there were already enough rabbis in Holland. So, you know, applications turned down again. So Rabbi Katz decides to write directly to the Queen. And he explains the hardships that he had gone through through the war and his longing to live in Holland. And then he writes as follows. Your Highness remembers the momentous meeting that preserved the course of royalty in Holland. And he talks about the Queen's encounter in Marienbad with the great sage and scholar. And he said, you will no doubt remember that the Rebbe had brought two boys along especially since they would need an interpreter because the queen would be speaking in german and rabbi katz writes i was the 18 year old boy who transmitted to your majesty the queen the wonderful news from the saintly rabbi that you would have a child within the year i therefore plead with your highness in recognition of my humble service to grant me the favor of emigrating to your country the letter he writes in Yiddish, and his son explained that uh, the father didn't want it written in German because then, you know, the Queen's secretary or whoever is going to uh, read it and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, bin it. But if it's written in a language that no one can understand, then it would pique their curiosity. So they bring an old Russian chazan called uh, Rabinowitz to translate it. He reads through the letter and realizes its significance. So he puts, you know, as much fervor as he could into it. But he was actually in front of Juliana, the daughter who had been born from this blessing, from this bracha. She hears the story and she goes to the, her mother, the queen, and says, is this true? She didn't know anything about it. And the queen says, yes, and I'd forgotten about it. <laughs> And the Queen at that moment made it her personal agenda to see that he be granted immigration. And Rabbi Katz mentions the kindness of the royal family in the foreword to the first of the Svarim that he prints after the war, that Hashem guided my footsteps to Amsterdam through the personal intervention of Queen Wilhelmina. Incredible. Yep. Wow. So that's an interaction. You're forgiven for veering off the British green, yeah. And now I'm going to leave you not with the story of another king, but with a question because of our next series on printing. The first in that series will be about the king of Poland ordering Jews to buy Svarim. And by Svarim, we mean very mainstream ones. He orders them to buy 800 Machsorim, 300 Chumoshim, amongst others. It is one of the most bizarre and strange episodes in the annals of Hebrew printing for next week. Thank you very much, Robert Hirsch. That's very fitting tribute. Um, I do remember now that there was a bit of a debate, a historical debate, whether the Queen was deathly ill in 1939, I believe, and she was given a blessing from the 
one of the rebbers. I think the shots are rebber. Have you ever come across that? I'd have to find out whether it is authentic or not. Yeah, I remember that being a bit. Okay, thank you very much for that. Um, as usual, any questions, suggestions, feedback, please do send to podcasts at jlee.org.uk. As you can see, the requests do get answered too. We received many requests for this episode. And Rabbi Hirsch didn't do, it, do the research and give you this episode. So feel free to recommend for the future. And thank you very much for coming. 